Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Janelle. We're back again with another show for you. Yay. This one. <laughs> I know I sound, subdued yay. <laughs> I feel like every time we record, it's getting earlier and earlier in the morning. And I am not a morning person. Like at I'm a all. morning person. But I'm a, I don't really sleep very much when it's hot person. So. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I discovered the other day that like yesterday, I looked at the thermostat in our house and my father had secretly upped it to 70, <laughs> set it at 75. I was like, Ew. what? No, that is what? too high. I know. That's a Try sauna, sleeping in that. <laughs> I'm looking into, they make like, not like the full units, but they're like little personal units that I kind of want to get mm. for myself to keep yeah. in here. <laughs> and I've said this before. We live in a hundred-year-old house, and putting central air in here would be insane because it would be a million dollars. So yeah. we have one unit, and we don't have anything upstairs. So we definitely are looking at something because it, <laughs> global warming called, and um, they want your your soul. <laughs> it's too fucking hot. <laughs> it's way too fucking hot. I'm sure. You guys do not want to hear us bitch about this. Is the old lady heat. corner? <laughs> this is taste crime cast. Mm-hmm. So we won't. We'll. Uh, <laughs> we're just gonna head over to the newsroom. Okay, so this week. Our news comes from NPR because guess what they found in Canada? More unmarked graves. (laughs) I know. We literally, we talked about this two episodes ago. Mm -hmm. And since recording, it was probably like, I think a week after Mm -hmm. the episode we last talked about this on came out. They were like, guess what? Found more. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? 
although also not really surprised with oh i'm not like given the history of (laughs) i've talked to like in through school i've talked to survivors of residential schools i'm a thousand percent not surprised no no and i do feel like again it's something that we need to highlight we need to talk about because somebody's got some some dues coming for all Mm -hmm. this bullshit well i hope (laughs) <laughs> you would like you would like to think so, right? I mean, they've been doing it for hundreds of years. What's going to change now? Mm. So, if you have no idea what we are talking about on June twenty fourth, how dare um, you? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> on June twenty fourth, it was announced that more bodies had been found at the uh, Maryval Indian Residential School, which was an operation from eighteen ninety nine to nineteen ninety seven which is not that long ago. Yeah. Although the last year they were considered like a Catholic school or whatever. Still doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. So currently it's the location of the Kawasas First Nation. They went also went in here with ground uh, penetrating radar showing 751 hits and officials believe that there are at least 600 bodies buried at this site because there is like a margin of error for the ground penetrating radar. Mm-hmm. So interestingly enough, Chief Cadmus Delorme of the Kawasas said that there were grave markers there at one point in time, but the Roman Catholic Church who operated the school had them removed. But there's not that many grave markers. <laughs> no, no. That is actually an anomaly that they would have marked them at all. Yeah. The day after the discoveries, Pope Francis did express pain and sympathy about the discovery, but offered no apology on behalf of the Catholic Church. Because yep. let's remember, that was the point of all of these residential schools. So mm-hmm. at this point, now two huge discoveries, because the last one was something like 200, I think, bodies. Yeah. This is obviously three times that, mm-hmm. so that's not great. I I would expect there to be a push now to further investigate more and more former sites of these residential schools, like even more than there there was before. Well, that's there was. I don't know if you saw this bit of news, but the um, Secretary of the Interior, Debbie Holland. Um, started an investigation for residential schools in the United States. I did not see that. So she announced publicly that they will be investigating all of the schools in the United States. And there were uh, quite a bit. There's a list that I posted. Oh, wait. um, You said the United States? Yeah, in the United States. There's 365 schools. (laughs) Because of what happened in Canada, they took the initiative. And they said that they will be investigating all 365 former residential schools in the United States. Well, I think that's great. <laughs> Honestly, it I find it a little unfortunate that sometimes it takes like something happening somewhere else to be like, eh, maybe we should look at our own shit and figure out what happened. Because let's be real. And this is something we've talked about before. The United States was like a test case for a lot of these things that other countries picked up, things like mm-hmm. residential schools, things like concentration camps. I mean, the, in, the uh, residential Nazi Germany. schools. Yeah, the residential schools are concentration camps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, like, see, let's not sugarcoat it. <laughs> like, we are not 
innocent of doing the exact same thing here. So I think it's great that they're going to look into it here as well. I just hope that the investigation is done in earnest and it's not yes. just like a we're doing a this show. to look formative. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So hopefully I don't have to share any more news like that. But honestly, I feel like if there is you more will. things uncovered, I I think I think we're going to talk about it on the show because I know this is something that both you and I are very passionate about. So yes, and I it you know it's a little bit related to what I'll be covering today as as well. Oh oh so. yes oh I didn't even <laughs> think about that I forgot yes. about that. <laughs> so that being said, um, oh actually wait we got to <laughs> do Netflix and kill first. Okay, don't forget. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we are going to be looking a little forward. I'm trying to think when this it'll be just after this episode comes out, I I believe July 14th. Netflix is releasing a new documentary called Private Network Who Killed Manuel Buendia. I haven't seen a thing for this yet. I saw the trailer for it and read into the case a little bit and i was like holy shit janelle is going to love this (laughs) (laughs) or at least the concept and the case behind it so Mm -hmm. buendia was a mexican journalist who worked at the most red paper in mexico city the daily excelsior his column called red privada or private network looked into government and law enforcement corruption, organized crime, and drug trafficking. He is most well-known for his reporting, which includes his coverage of CIA covert operations in Mexico, Mm -hmm. the rise of ultra-right-wing groups, fraudulent businessmen, corruption in Mexico's state-owned petroleum company Pemex, and the role of organized crime in Mexico's political system. So I think... I think you can see where this is going. Um, yeah, anyone who talks about corruption in Mexico gets yes, murdered. Yeah. So. <laughs> so on May 30th, 1984, Buendia was shot from behind several times as he was walking from his office to his car, leaving him dead at the scene. The investigation into his death lasted five years, and in the end, several members of the now disbanded Federal Security Directora- Directorate which was, at the time, Mexico's top police force. I get the impression that it was kind of like KGB-ish, like kind of Kremlin-y, you know? Okay. So a couple of members of, they call it the DSF, DSR? I forget. Were arrested, yes, for their involvement. However, there's a ton of doubt that's been cast over this investigation, and a lot of people still believe that the real killers were never arrested. But I totally get this kind of like conspiracy vibe uh-huh. with all of his governmental um, investigation. Quite frankly, there's a lot of corruption in Mexico's government. Yeah. That puts Chicago to shame, I would say. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this is going to be a really interesting watch. It is all in Spanish. So heads up on that because you're gonna need subtitles don't watch this like before bed or like (laughs) (laughs) but it looks really really interesting and that comes out on july 14th this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners this week we are talking about a lot of stuff (laughs) holy moly 
Yes. If, if you're, for mine, if you're indigenous, it will be completely triggering and traumatizing. So yes. maybe not listen. <laughs> I will also say this is probably going to be one of our more political episodes. We don't have very mm-hmm. many, but definitely leans that way. Yes. There are to be instances of, of murder and killing, and we're probably going to talk about some really sensitive topics. So mm-hmm. heads up on all that, because this week we are talking about standoffs. So I was inspired by this old, I am on video with Janelle. She can kind yes. of see it's like a an old Northwest oh Herald. When is that from? <laughs> so this the one- logo choice. Yes, that was the first thing I noticed. This is from January 19th, 1988. Yeah, there's taught like literally the top article is about a district talking about AIDS policy and how to do AIDS edu- education. So like, if that gives you any idea. Whoa, that um, is like progressive, Harold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there was a I forget there was some political thing in here that I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, it was the end of the Ronald Reagan era. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because we found this in my basement this weekend as some cleaning was was being done. And on the on the front page, there's this little down in the corner right here. It's just like a mm-hmm. little thing that says Utah standoff passes its third day. And I was like, what is this about? Because Utah, think about it for a second. Yes. Love lots of standoffs happen out there yeah. <laughs> and lots of Mormons. So I looked into it and found out that this is actually a story that spans many years and includes multiple standoffs. Jeez Louise. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, and I love finding stories like this where it's like one little thing and I look into it and it's like this onion of <laughs> layers and layers to the story. Mm-hmm. So you've been in a really, uh, You've been in a real Mormon hole lately, Vicky. <laughs> yeah, you know. I go through cycles of like like looking into religion and then doing more like murdery things and then doing like I was just on a kick of white collar crimes and like fraud and mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. It's just, yeah. Goes in cycles. <laughs> <laughs> right now it's religion. Yes. <laughs> So this is a story of the singer swap standoff. And like I said, it's quite an expansive tale that really has echoes of Ruby Ridge and Waco, both of mm-hmm. which would happen later. This actually happened way before Ruby Ridge and Waco. So I wouldn't be surprised if the people involved there also knew about this. Yeah. And mine was a little bit before yours. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So... It all starts out with a man named John Singer, um, which is a name that is infamous among fundamentalist Mormons in Utah. John was born in 1932 in New York City, but spent the first chunk of his youth in Germany, where he was a member of the Hitler Youth. Well, we're off to a (laughs) really great start. I know. It's just, you know, it's cool. pretty major. And he, he was involved <laughs> with the Hitler Youth, I believe, until he was about 15. So. Okay. So well past the age of not knowing what's going on or having opinions. So cool, cool, cool. Yup. Yup. 
So later in life, he returned to the States and John joined the Mormon church and was a member for many, many years before being excommunicated in 1973 for, quote, constantly questioning Mormon doctrine. Hmm. And from what I could tell, one of the major reasons was he was a a very big advocate of polygamy, which within the LDS is kind of like a a splitting point at some places. Who isn't, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't want, like, seven wives? Why would you want so many wives? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And polygamy is one of these things that I'm like, it's, it is totally one of these things that I'm just like, you do you for the most part. There is some places where there's this, like, abusive aspect to it, which is, like, not cool. But at the same time. Do you ever watch Big Love, Vicky? Yes. Yeah, that's what I think of all the time, like. If if you're gonna do polygamy, do it Bill Paxton style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I think there are some people who there it does not have that abusive aspect to it, and ha- mm-hmm. who are into it. and that's cool, that's fine as long as it's not abusive. But like at the same time, I also wonder about. I realize it's just a, a biblical thing, but yeah. why can't we have seat. multiple husbands? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, I mean, want multiple do really husbands. Want, do you really want no. multiple husbands? No, but I wish it would be done from some pioneering, like, yeah. woman, you know, wanting to do polygamy the other way. I don't know. There are some Southeast Asian communities, more indigenous, where it's more of a matriarchal society. And I think it's, it was the Philippines, or there's another island over there, um, where they do have a society like that, where a woman has Ooh. her home. And she okay. has multiple husbands who live in their own homes. Oh, nice. Then, See, then I like in- that. Yeah, she invites, you know, whatever husband over she wants for whatever time period. So I think it's because, you know, Western civilization is more of a patriarchal society. Oh, but yeah. there are, I oh, mean, yeah. there's arguments. Mostly indigenous communities are matriarchal. So, yeah, that's, I'm down you with know, that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there's this great Washington Post article by John Harrington about John Singer's background, where they talk about his marriage to his first wife in 1963, Vicki Lemon. So this is from that article, quote, her parents caused a fear saying that Singer had brainwashed their daughter. They even tried to get her committed to a mental hospital. The Singers fled to Nevada to have the ceremony performed, and they returned to Singer's Marion, Utah farm and prepared for what Singer said would be a time only the fittest will survive, end quote. That doesn't sound too appealing. <laughs> That's already a little doomsday-ish. Mm-hmm. So following his excommunication in 1973, John decided to pull five of his school-aged kids out of school to homeschool them because he objected to much of the public school teaching, specifically the subject of racial equality. Yeah, that's surprising he put them in there in the first place. Yeah, well, and sometimes it's easier to do that and comply with the state Board of Education requirements. Mm Mm-hmm. But not this time, because, like, initially, the school board was totally fine with him pulling his kids out, but he decided to ignore all of the school board progress testing, which yeah. resulted in the Summit County attorney filing a, a criminal uh, misdemeanor charge. Yeah. There's still standards that you have to adhere by. <laughs> I deal a lot with homeschool students in the past couple jobs I've had teaching art classes for homeschool students. And... A lot of the people I've encountered have 
left the public school sphere because they want it to be a extremely religious based educational experience. So much so that they're teaching. So they're, they'll teach the requirements of the state. And then after that, teach why that is incorrect. So like dinosaurs existing and why that's not correct and doesn't align with the Bible. So stuff like that. It's real fun to talk to those children because it blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. And I think there is sort of this misconception about homeschooling where it's like, well, I can pull my kid out and teach them whatever I want. And not realizing (laughs) you still have like state requirements you have to deal with. And (laughs) Illinois is Illinois and California, I think, have the strictest homeschool uh, requirements from the state. So. Mm hmm. Which I would say is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the story of John Singer standing up to the state sort of spread far and wide, which attracted reporters and supporters alike to their ranch. Many of the supporters showed up saying that they had been sent by God to support their mission. Okay. Summit County Sheriff Ron Robinson took notice as well, who was at this point like, wrestling with a way to bring John Singer into court. He had attempted on several occasions to approach John nonviolently and ask him to voluntarily give himself up. But each time John insisted that if it came down to it, he would defend himself and his family with firearms if he had to. The only way to do it. Yep. You're on my land. Let me get my guns. You're talking to my family. Guns. (laughs) Don't talk to me or my son ever again. (laughs) Now, during the conflict with the state, John Singer expanded his family by taking a second wife named Shirley Black, because polygamy. Wait, so what was the last name of his first wife? Was Lemon? Vicky Lemon. Lemon and But now Black. it's Vicky Those Singer. Like, yeah. Very interesting uh, last names. <laughs> yeah. So she brought with her five kids from a previous marriage. Oh, that's interesting. So 10 kids all together. <laughs> Things finally came to a head when a raid was conducted on the Singer's home in October 19th, 1978. Again, from the Washington Post article, quote, that day as dusk approached, a black Lincoln Continental drove up the turnout to the Singer property. A man identifying himself as Bob Wilson of the Los Angeles Times climbed out He was, in reality, an officer of the Utah Highway Patrol with a warrant for Singer's arrest. He told Singer he had a crew in a van following close behind. When the crew arrived, they trapped Singer and forced him into the van as Singer's two wives and 10 children swarmed the lawmen. Singer freed a hand and pulled a 38 caliber automatic pistol from his pocket. Aiming at the officers, he said, get your ugly faces out of here or I'll (laughs) blow your heads off. Classic. (laughs) All of, I imagine it with more swearing, but they probably had to edit it for publication. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, he's Mormon. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. All of the lawmen left the area and immediately filed felony charges for criminal assault. Now, after this confrontation, Singer essentially converted his home into a compound and was like putting up wire covering to keep out tear gas canisters if they decided to throw tear gas in. They never left the house unarmed. After surveilling the Singers for 18 days, police attempted to arrest John Singer again as he checked his mailbox. He again pulled his pistol on the approaching agents who shot John multiple times, killing him. 
John's first wife, Vicky, was held overnight and then released back to their children. She was allowed to keep all the kids. And John's second wife, Shirley, she was not arrested, but the custody of her children were given back to their biological father. Vicky would later file a 110 million lawsuit against the state that would eventually be thrown out. And if you're wondering why Vicky's the one doing that, it's because she's legally married <laughs> to John. And gotcha. I'm pretty sure they only recognize singular marriage in yeah. the United States, like everywhere. Mm-hmm. So remember, that is just the beginning. That's the first standoff, okay? <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, enter a man named Adam Swap. At the time of this whole, like, standoff thing, he was in high school when John Singer died. And Swap had said that the shooting had a great impact on him. Now, he would eventually marry two of John's daughters, because, again, polygamy. (laughs) But also, that's marrying sisters. Yeah. I wonder (laughs) if that's a, a normal thing or not. Like, I wonder if that's... In in relationships that practice polygamy, if that's like uh, frowned mm. upon, or if that's like a like an average, like I married three sisters in the same family type of thing. I mean, my great two of my great aunts married brothers, <laughs> but that was not yeah, but, polygamy based. I was going to say, but what be- is not married to both brothers? <laughs> that was just being southern. <laughs> That'd be like, yeah, that's true. That'd be like getting married to twins. Yeah. Like, or triplets? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Strange I guess if you, if you have a type, like... <laughs> have all of the type. <laughs> <laughs> so he married two of John's daughters and then became part of the Singer family. Now, this is from um, Desert News. Quote, it was during this time that Swap admitted he developed very, very strong religious beliefs and thought that Somehow Singer was guiding him, end quote. Then Swap said he had received a divine revelation that he could resurrect John Singer by bombing a public Latter-day Saints building. On the ninth anniversary of John Singer's death, Swap planted 18 sticks of dynamite at the LDS meeting house, causing $1 to $1.5 million in damages. So this launched yet another standoff at the Singer property, this time lasting 13 days and involving approximately 150 officers, 14 members of his extended family, including John Singer's son, John Timothy, were holed up in the house, uh, still thinking that this conflict would end with John being resurrected. Of course. I know. (laughs) Which... It's just one of these things that it's like, I have to, it's weird because the idea is I have to incite this conflict in order for this resurrection to be complete. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that is some like psychological connection with the conflict that resulted in John's death before, or if that's just like some craziness, you know what I mean? Yeah. Multiple negotiators were sent into the home, including Vicky's son-in-law, Roger Bates, who returned to authorities saying the family had absolutely no intention of surrendering. And a friend of the family, Ogden Kraut, who also reported a refusal to cooperate. Swap was insisting that the conflict needed to play out for the resurrection to be successful. So 
authorities blasted the compound with loud noises and bright lights, which are both techniques that would later be used at Waco. Mm -hmm. Still pretty controversial because I'm I'm pretty sure that's considered torture. Yes. Mm -hmm. And on the final day of the standoff, John Timothy, who, by the way, was wheelchair bound. It wasn't totally clear why, but he was in a wheelchair at the time. John Timothy began shooting a rifle at officers as they prepared to release dogs on the property. So there was this, the plan was as one of them was coming outside, they would blast them with strobe lights to like, not disarm, but like stun them. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as they're stunned by strobe lights, the officer would release the dog, which would then go and attack. So there's an accidental trigger of the strobe lights. And Lieutenant Fred House thought that it was actually a successful deal. And so he stood up into the open to release the dogs and they started firing on him. So a total of 10 rounds were fired, one of which struck Lieutenant Fred House, who died as a result. Swap was also injured in the ensuing shootout, eventually surrendering by waving a bloody white towel in the air. In 1988, John Timothy was convicted of murdering a police officer, receiving 10 years in prison and five years probation. He was released from prison in 2006. Adam Swap, who received the majority of the blame for the events that transpired and takes the majority. He's basically like, I set these things in motion. Yes, I realized that John Timothy killed this officer, but like he would not have been in that place had I not set all of these events in motion. So he takes most of the blame for this whole deal. He received 17 years for the church bombing and an additional 15 years for manslaughter. Before the sentencing, Swap voiced his belief that he probably wouldn't serve any prison time because the government was about to collapse if people didn't repent. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which the instant somebody says something like that, like I, you know, I won't serve any of this because the government's just going to collapse. Um, if I'm like, only okay. it were that easy. Like, yeah, yeah. But he did serve. So. Oh, <laughs> Just about, yeah. He uh, His original sentencing came up for review in 2007, but they denied and he remained in prison. But in July 2013, Swap was released after serving 25 years in prison. He has since done interviews claiming to have a newfound faith in the Bible and issuing a formal apology for all of the actions that transpired. I'm always a little skeptical of people who do something horrible like this and... Mm-hmm then is like i found jesus but i'm skeptical of religion anyway so i don't know that that says much you know but yeah that that is the story of the singer swap standoff that i found in this little corner article (laughs) of a newspaper (laughs) from what did i say 1988 in my basement was this huge story of yes yeah (laughs) yes twists and turns and honestly i'm kind of surprised that i haven't heard of this because Mm -hmm. when you talk about things like ruby ruby ridge and waco a lot of people point to other similar instances um, that came before Mm -hmm. and i honestly cannot ever remember hearing of the singer swap standoff so yeah i I have not heard of that either but no it was the 80s so (laughs) 
everything gets hyped more it in was the, 90s. the 80s there's a lot of this type of shit going on <laughs> yeah true true judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I would say that was lighthearted. In comparison to what's coming. (laughs) I know. That was not even that lighthearted, but you're right. So, Becky, have you ever heard of the 1973 Wounded Knee Occupation? I have. Oh, good. Yes. Most people have not. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, I believe it was something that we were taught in school, which was part of don't know. <laughs> I, I, I want to say like that. high school, probably. I don't think it was like the younger years, but I definitely mm-hmm. think it was at least touched on in high school. Yeah, I don't recall that, but I also didn't pay attention much to history class yeah. because <laughs> white people be tripping. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so I've discussed AIM before in a past episode, and if you're not familiar or haven't heard that particular episode, it stands for the American Indian Movement, and they are the major players in the story that I will tell today of the 1973 Wounded Knee Occupation. Now, are you familiar with the original Wounded Knee, or the location of Wounded Knee? Probably not. Okay, so Wounded Knee Creek is a space in North Dakota along a river tributary. This land was declared in a treaty to belong to the Ogala Lakota Sioux. It is what is referred to now as uh, Pine Ridge Reservation Area. The original Wounded Knee Massacre was in 1890, and this is what kicked off a whole host of events and inevitably what really was another trigger for the American Indian Movement being created. Now, throughout 1890, the U.S. government worried about increasing influences of Pine Ridge particularly their ghost dance spiritual movement. Now, this movement taught that Indians had been confined to reservations because they had angered the gods by abandoning their traditional customs because they were forced to. (laughs) Many Sioux believed that if they practiced the ghost dance and rejected the ways of the white man, the gods would create the world anew and destroy non-believers, a.k.a. non-Indians, a.k.a. all them white people. (laughs) so is this like do you feel like this is in direct response to everybody being forced on reservations Mm -hmm. yeah this was right around when residential schools were being kicked off this was right around when they started the food uh subsidiary 
where they started mass killing herds of buffalo, telling indigenous people that they weren't allowed to farm almost all of the lands that they were forced to reside on in in okay in these okay so and then they started providing them with food that was like white flour lard and canned vegetables which if you know anything about indigenous foodways they don't do that they don't eat wheat (laughs) and the lard that they eat is to cook in and it's like you know bison tallow is that so on December 15th, 1890, reservation police tried to arrest Sitting Bull, who was the famous Sioux chief, who they mistakenly believed was a ghost dancer. He was not. And they killed him. And so increasing the tensions at Pine Ridge, people started to kind of push back and try to force the reservation police off the reservation. And then a brutal massacre followed. It It was estimated that 150 indigenous people were killed. Some historians place the number twice as high as that. And nearly half of them were women and children. In comparison, the cavalry who came and massacred all the people, only 25 people in that cavalry died. Wow. I'm going to say that the way that people report numbers, there's probably way more than 150 people. Especially at that time, too. It was not even close to accurate. Mm -hmm. So this is the climax of the government controlling tribes and seizing lands, especially across the plains. They were committing genocide. If, if you don't believe that you can stop listening now because it was genocide. (laughs) Yep. So basically 1860 to 1890 saw the extreme rapid movement of indigenous peoples to reservations and residential schools, which are concentration camps. We've talked about that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Now, I want to show you a very short clip because this kind of shows you how quickly the government moved people from their land and forced them into reservations. And it's a really great map and it has a really great clip that you can watch. So let me cue it up here. So if you're not familiar, uh, Sean Sherman is a indigenous chef. He is Sue. He goes, his company's called the Sioux Chef, which is like a fun play on words. Uh, oh, that's a Sioux cute. Chef, I like that. Yeah, I like that. But there's a massive movement right now to bring back indigenous foodways. I have his cookbook. It's beautiful. I've made some of the recipes. It's a lot of foraging, a lot of hunting. So if you want to check it out, it's really great. He has a food co-op. He has a YouTube channel. He does a lot of catering for events to show how to bring back foodways and finding all of these lost, you know, seeds and stuff and ways of cooking. So he talks about colonization in his his work because obviously <laughs> that is yeah. part of why their foodways changed. So this right. is I'll cue this up here. But then we look at US colonialism, which is something very recent and people don't understand. So at the beginning of our country in the early in the late 1700s, still over 80% of the entire part of the land was still under indigenous control at that point in time. So Native American history isn't something that's ancient history, right? It's very recent. So again, this is just the the era of my great grandfather. So you'll see how fast that the U.S. government starts to push to take over um, America, you know, indigenous people's lands. And it happens really fast, and especially 
shortly after Civil War. So basically between the years of 1840 and 1870, um, almost all of the land is taken over. And during that time, the same thing is happening. People are being de dislocated. They're getting pushed around. People are getting pushed into Oklahoma. Um, entire families are getting wiped out. All of these farming communities, seeds are disappearing from these and um, all this farming that's happening on the eastern side of the United States. And it happens really, really fast. So for me, it was just kind of an eye-opener to think about like how recent this is and how little people don't understand uh, our own histories, right? Because, I mean, if all you uh, read about in history is from your high school textbooks, you're going to have a very skewed sense of American history since you know, it was written by the U.S. government. So at the end of the 1800s, we have very little of any control of our lands left. So we lost a lot of things during that time period. So we're kind of in the sense of kind of traumatic healing at this point. Um, we're barely getting to the point of healing. We just went through a very traumatic time period and a very recent time period too. So um, for us, like... So it, it starts off in the 1780s, that map, and then it gets to the 1800s and all of a sudden it goes from blue, which is mostly indigenous, to gray, meaning that they're completely gone. And then all of these little yellow spots start popping up. And those are the reservations. And it's interesting to see literally like the size of the reservations compared to the area where indigenous people were. It's oh, yeah. like, it's like 0.1% of like the space that they started mm -hmm. with, which is just absurd to me. Yeah. So this site and this massacre are not only important parts of the Sioux history. They are major parts of the, f the fight that indigenous groups continue even today. The fight for sovereignty and preserving heritage and their way of life. So the 70s, the 60s and the 70s were, you know, major points in time for all of this kind of reclamation and fighting for people's basic human fucking rights. So Pine Ridge was, and probably still is, I think, the poorest reservation in the United States. And this was a really big contributing factor as to why the occupation began in the first place. The elected chief, Richard Wilson, was said to have been taking bribes and from the government and not caring about his own people. So in turn, a movement began to impeach him. Wilson had a private militia at his hand, though. So he had this group of people and they were basically protecting him and kind of going around and busting up other people as they tried to get him impeached. The other major thing that was kind of a big deal is that Wilson sold grazing rights on the tribal land to local white ranchers at an extremely low rate, which reduced the income of the tribe. So they had all of this beautiful land because they're in, in North Dakota and all that you can really do out there is farm or ranch. So mm -hmm. um, instead of, you know, holding this land for his own people, he started basically renting it out. And he did so at, like, poverty rates. And so there's not very many ways that reservations can make money. And one of them is renting out part of their land. So he was basically, you know, telling them that his their land is worth nothing. So the other thing that happened, he's he's renting out all of this land. He also leased nearly one-eighth of the reservation's mineral-rich lands to a private company. So one part of the reservation's being used for grazing. One part is being leased to a private company to harvest. So was there was the primary motivation behind this, like, to get money or to, like, garner favor or, like, 
It was for him to get money. He was he was basically money and power. Yeah, he was basically accepting bribes for all of this stuff okay. from people. So okay. he was getting rich, but his people were not. Gotcha. Okay. So there was a significant increase as well at this time in attacks on Lakota men off the reservation, which local police failed to intervene in. In 1973, the murder of 20-year-old Wesley Badhart Bull in a bar in Buffalo Gap led to a small standoff. And then on February 6th, 1973, AIM led about 200 supporters to meet at the courthouse in Custer, where they expected to discuss civil rights issues and wanted charges against the suspect raised to murder from second-degree manslaughter. They were met by riot police, who allowed only five people to enter the courthouse, despite the fact that there was a fucking blizzard happening outside. Oh my god. The confrontation became violent, during which protesters burned down the Chamber of Commerce building, damaged the courthouse, and destroyed two police cars and vandalized other buildings. Holy shit. Shortly after the impeachment proceedings against Wilson were brought, they really didn't go very far. He actually locked himself up in his home. And that's when the occupation started. Okay. The traditional chiefs and AIM leaders met with com- the community to discuss how to deal with the deteriorating situation on the reservation. Women elders, such as OSCRO founder Alan Moves Camp, Gladys Bissonette, and Agnes Lamont, urged the men to take action. On February 27, 1973, approximately 200 Ogala Lakota and followers of the American Indian Movement occupied the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. The next day, AIM members traded gunfire with federal marshals surrounding the settlement and fired on automobiles, low-flying planes that they brought in, and anyone else who dared to come in within rifle range. I mean, they were pretty much like, this is our space. (laughs) Yeah. Stay out of it. So immediately they set up roadblocks about in a 15-mile radius around the town. AIM demanded that the U.S. Senate launch an investigation into the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Pine Ridge, and the Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. They also wanted the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to hold hearings on all of the Indian treaties broken by the United States government. And I wanted to play this really quick clip from PBS because I feel like it is just exemplifies the, the feeling of what was happening during this time period. And it's just a minute clip, so it'll be pretty quick. I was ready to do whatever it takes for change. I didn't care. I had children, and for them, I figured I could make a stand here. They were up to no good. I mean, why would they be traveling in a caravan with all these weapons and all these Molotov cocktails if they weren't going to engage in some kind of destructive activity. By the 1970s, native people, once masters of the continent, had become invisible, consigned to the margins of American life. Their anger and frustration would explode in wounded knee. We were about to be obliterated culturally. Our, Our spiritual way of life, our entire way of life was about to be stamped out. And this was a rebirth of our dignity and self-pride. For the next 71 days, Indian protesters at Wounded Knee would hold off the federal government at gunpoint. So you're hearing from people who were actually part of 
of this occupation. And it shows this, like, beautiful line of, like, Sioux women in, like, their, you know, pants and denim shirts with fucking rifles and aviator sunglasses. It's just... Yeah. It's the most epic, beautiful thing I could have ever hoped to see. Yeah. But then you hear from this asshole who was there uh, as part of the U.S. Marshals. (laughs) And he's like, oh, why are they driving around with guns and Molotov cocktails? First of all, they did not have Molotov cocktails. That's hearsay. (laughs) Right. Um, They did have a shit ton of rifles, though. And they, you know, they did burn down the buildings in Custer, but it wasn't, it wasn't Molotov cocktails. They, like, set, you know, trash cans on fire and stuff. So it's not... It's not the same. It's so frustrating. I always, I always love this idea of like the government doing some really shitty stuff mm-hmm. and then people get mad and then they're like, why is everybody so mad? Yeah, why right? is everybody doing all this? I'm like, come on, guys. Like, no, it just, it's one of these things that I'm like, fucking really? Like, look around. Look around. Yeah. Read the fucking room. And <laughs> yes, figure out why people are mad, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, this occupation lit a fire in other indigenous groups to start another wave of civil rights fights. Now, we often talk about civil rights movements and the women's liberation movement, but we really fail, and perhaps this is purposefully so, to acknowledge the native civil rights movement. The government in the 70s was almost successful in completely eradicating Native peoples. Like, completely eradicating them. Yeah. There were such low birth rates and such a high percentage of death in the 70s on reservations that I'm not even fucking kidding. We almost didn't have Indigenous people in the United States anymore. Through government food programs, forced poverty, um, straight up ignoring murders of people, and not providing assistance when people were asking and and demanding that they needed help on reservations, they Mm -hmm. dwindled the population down to practically fucking nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, getting back to the occupation, there was an account by the U.S. Marshal Service that I am not going to read to you, because quite frankly, it's a joke. The way that they described individuals involved and the event in total is beyond shameful and absolutely disgusting. If you remember Ruby Ridge and Waco and how they were handled, it's a whole lot of that minus the outrage because these people were not white. So there was outrage after Waco and Ruby Ridge, but there was no outrage after the massacre of all of these fucking people. So right. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking like it wasn't the same outrage because, because the people who got mad about fucking Ruby Ridge and Waco were like white either supremacy. religious fundament <laughs> yeah, religious fundamentalists or fucking white supremacists. So, yep. God. so there's a great newspaper quote and and it was kind of just describing what the United States government brought and what I told you that they that the indigenous peoples already had. So. The equipment maintained by the military while in use during the siege included 15 armored personnel carriers, clothing, rifles, grenade launchers, flares, and 133,000 rounds of ammunition for a total cost, including the use of maintenance personnel from the National Guard, of five states and a pilot in planes for aerial photography, cost over half a million dollars. Oh my god. So they had all this equipment, they spent half a million dollars, and all the people on the reservation had were fucking rifles. 
I just, it just so, is so, it's so maddening. <laughs> it's so maddening. Like, oh God. I mean, obviously, I think there's, there is something to be said for hindsight. Like, we are looking mm-hmm. back at this now in 2021 being like, that's fucking overkill. But let me tell, let me, let me bring this up. What about Standing Rock? That's right. recent. Same right. fucking, same fucking thing happened. They right. were bringing water cannons and rifles yeah. and a tank to people who were saying, we don't want our water contaminated. So nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah. And that's not, I don't want to say that as an excuse to like, be like, this was fine. But I do yeah. think um, some people would be like, well, you guys are looking at this in hindsight. Obviously, we didn't know them what we know now. But I'm sorry. Like, we knew enough to not try to like kill a whole bunch of fucking people. Yeah. You know, like there's some common sense things in there that's like. Just basic human decency that, oh God, it just is so, it makes me mad. It makes me real mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after 30 days in like typical government style, they cut off the water supply and food to the location. However, since the people who lived on the reservation knew the land the fucking best, they were able to smuggle in food, water, and medical aid just fine. So they tried, but they did not succeed <laughs> in cutting off food and water. Now, there was one person in the conflict, who was a U.S. Marshal who did get shot right when it started, and they did suffer paralysis and are are in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. However, there are multiple people who were on the opposing side who were murdered. Frank Clearwater, who was a Cherokee supporter from North Carolina, snuck into the reservation to assist. He was shot in the head on April 17th within 24 hours upon arrival. He was resting in an occupied church, and a sniper took him out. Lawrence Buddy Lamont, who was a local Agala, uh, was killed by a government sniper as well on April 26th. He was buried on the site in a Sioux ceremony, and after his death, tribal elders called to end the occupation. It didn't happen right away. So, yeah. One of the strangest things that I read about that, that occurred had to do with a gentleman called Ray Robinson. Now, Ray Robinson was a black civil rights activist who went to South Dakota to join the Wounded Knee occupation. He was seen there by a journalist and another activist, and somehow he disappeared during the siege and was never found. The widow of Robinson tried to get attention brought to his disappearance again when there was a conviction established on the murder of Aname Akwash in 2004. Um, We covered that in a previous episode, so you can go back to that one to hear more about that. They still don't know what happened to him. There was some rumblings that people thought that he might be an FBI informant. Oh, really? And there are a lot of people who think that he is dead and buried somewhere on the reservation. So the siege lasted a total of 71 days and ended on May 8th, 1973. Russell Means and Dennis Banks were arrested, which were the AIM founders, but on September 16th, 1973, the charges against them were dismissed by a federal judge because of the U.S. government's unlawful handling of witnesses and evidence. Big (laughs) shocker, yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, the violence continued on Pyridge after the occupation, I hate using the word siege in all of this um, because it makes it sound like what they were doing was unjustified, but it totally was justified. Mm -hmm. So just take that into consideration when you're reading stuff about this. You're going to find a lot of it coming up as siege instead of an occupation. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Richard Wilson's devout followers attacked several people on the reservation who wanted to have him ousted, and more than 60 people who opposed the tribal government died violently shortly after the occupation. AIM claimed that many of these murders were not solved, of course. (laughs) The FBI denies this. But if you see how many bodies have been uncovered during excavations of residential schools recently, honey, uh, you know that there is more deaths that have not been investigated or reported. So (laughs) many. I bet you there's so many. In 1975, two FBI agents and a Native American man were killed in a massive shootout between federal agents and AIM members and local residents in the same area. In a controversial trial, AIM member Leonard Pelletier was found guilty on first-degree murder and sentenced to two consecutive life terms, and then AIM disbanded shortly after this in 1978. So it went quickly downhill. Mm-hmm. But the fight still proceeds today. Um, like I mentioned, we've had Standing Rock, the residential school mass graves, the Dakota Access Pipeline, the acknowledgement finally by the Canadian government of the Trail of Tears up in Canada. And then we have the land back movement that's happening right now. And this is all things that have happened in the past 10 to 15 years. So what AIM started in the late 60s still continues today. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to end this little informational thing with a bit of a soapbox moment. Let me pull my soapbox out here. All right. Get it, girl. (laughs) Here we go. If you would like to aid in the reclamation of land and community of indigenous peoples in this country, I... A thousand percent urge you to visit landback.org, ndncollective.org, or honorearth.org. These sites give you ways to help fight for climate justice, racial equity, land stewardship, fucking basic water rights, <laughs> and a whole lot more. <laughs> In case you weren't aware, Indigenous people are the largest group of land stewards in the world. The United States committed genocide on on Indigenous peoples, and it's time to kind of recognize that and change the tides. I'm really proud to hear the announcement by the Secretary of Interior, Debbie Halland, who is a Laguna Pueblo, that they're going to be investigating all of this in the residential schools. But, like, please, 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 please read history books that you did not read in school. Because there's so much more information out there that you have no idea ever happened and that we were part of, that we did, that we committed as a country. I recommend the book An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. If you don't want to pick up a book, head over to the zinedproject.org. That's Z-I-N-N-E-D-project.org. Also, you can look up some works by Debbie Reese. She also has a website. And I could really like list off a thousand things. But if you're very curious and you want to know more, just email us at thebadtastecrimecast at gmail.com. It's part of my job. I can give you some recommendations. It's what I do all day. (laughs) It's part of one of my many jobs. It's true. This is a major part of my art education research and part of my job working in the library. I work in youth services mostly, and we absolutely make it a point to represent and bring attention to inward groups. I have specifically created book lists for people who wanted to uh, have children's books from perspectives that are non-white and helping students with research projects. And as part of my art education research, I've done a lot of research on art in residential schools and how it fucking saved a lot of those kids' lives. So if you have questions or want to know more or want to know some recommendations, just email us and I will send some stuff your way. (laughs) Great. That was uh, very educational. 
Yes. I would say. End with the education. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting and important story. And I'm glad that you were able to tell it because I think there's a lot of stuff in there that I didn't particularly know. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's hard. It's very, it's very hard to read a lot of stuff without like bursting into tears. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very personal. (laughs) Yes. If you find yourself in a standoff for whatever reason, (laughs) put the gun down, (laughs) use your, use your own tactics and blast this podcast out of a loudspeaker (laughs) at police. Some would have you believe that this is quote, a promotional ad blurb for the Nihilist Podcast Network, done in the style of the popular NPN news show, This Week in Nihilism. Subscribe to Nihilist Podcast Network on iTunes or another podcast app to hear more of This Week in Nihilism's up-to-the-week updates on world news and popular culture. That's all the time we have for this promotional ad blurb. Join us next ad blurb, assuming the Earth has not been destroyed by way too many ants. Okay, well, that has been our episode. Yeah. If you want to hear more like this, you go to badtastepodcast.com. Uh, where we have this and all of our episodes. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Actually, if you're listening to this, you probably already found us, so that's fine. Good um, on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want some merch, there is a link to our merch page on our website. Mm-hmm. There's also a link to our donate page. If you want to support the show that way, you can. We won't say no. I think I said that on the last episode, and I was like, yes. it's true. We won't say no. <laughs> Any, what else? Do we have anything else, Janelle? Yeah. Um, keep an eye out. We will be performing at the Fringe Festival, Elgin Fringe oh, Festival. How did I forget about the Fringe? September. Um, like I said, they're still kind of figuring things out. Once, because I'm part of the library world and we do a lot of stuff with schools, once school starts, shit's probably going to hit the fan again, just so you guys know. We might have to roll backwards. There might have to be some um, some more shots that we have to take. So the Fringe Festival might have to do some shifting. So we don't know currently oh, yeah. if we'll be in person or recorded or on Zoom or whatever. Yeah. But that will kind of start to be put together more as we get closer to the date. So that's going to be in September. You can head over to Elgin Fringe Festival or Side Street Studio Arts if you want to find out more information or look at some of the old stuff from previous shows. You said more shots and I was like, shots of what? Boosters. <laughs> Shots of Which, tequila to get us through the winter. Sense, but I was like, are we doing shots already? Okay. It's We're only 9 o'clock, but... Tequila shots while we get our booster COVID shots. <laughs> yes. Fuck yeah. I would so. do that. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, our sound <laughs> and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. Has murdered ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form or another. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.